It's the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, filmmaker, documentarian, and founder of Real Black Presents, Michael J. Dennis. Like, in a perfect world, like, if I was a studio executive, like, Dolomite would have, like, a three-picture deal. Like, he would be, like, the Woody <laughs> Allen at my studio. Like, whatever Dolomite wants to do, he gets to make it because it's just, it's just so, so bizarre. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and here we talk to artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. You can find the Fun to Know podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, leave comments for us there, or email us at fun to know podcast, always with a numeral two, at gmail.com. Great place to review the show? iTunes would be the place. On today's show, filmmaker Mike Dennis. Mike is the founder of Real Black, with two E's and currently in his 16th year. Through Real Black, Mike has exercised his multifaceted talents as a production house for hire, as a producer for his own films, making content for their YouTube channel, Real Black TV, currently at 5 million hits and climbing, and as promoter of over 200 film events in and around the Philadelphia area. Check out their regularly updated website at realblack.com. In 2002, I had one of my more memorable nights out at the theater when I attended the premiere screening of Philly Boy, a film about MC Breeze. MC Breeze is a native Philadelphian who grew up in the West Philadelphia neighborhood known as the Bottoms. Breeze was a driven entertainer who rapped, sang, played guitar, made his own outfits, and scored a huge local hit in 1986 with an independently pressed record called Discombobulator Boobulator. Breeze rose to national heights before returning to Earth, but the film celebrates his journey rather than cursing what could be. Anyway, the screening was a love-filled affair with Breeze taking a bow before his gushing fans and neighbors, and every seat in the house was given a package of classic hip-hop trading cards from the 90s show Yo! MTV Raps. I remember getting a Bismarcky card in my pack. Somehow, I never connected the Mike D, who directed that film, with Mike Dennis of Real Black, who I had hit up for some fascinating conversation over the years after some of their regular events. Myself, I've written about film for the Philadelphia Weekly and Falker.com over the last 15 years. I've been looking for a guest to engage in an in-depth conversation on film for fun to know, and Mike seemed like a natural guest. Only then did I do the research on Mike and found out that besides being an ingratiating conversationalist, he was also a graduate of film programs at both NYU and the American Film Institute out in L.A. Mike's own story as a filmmaker spans a fascinating era in black cinema, heading to New York in the years after Spike Lee broke out of NYU with She's Gotta Have It, and then going to school in L.A. in the 90s when he interned at The Cosby Show and was a witness to Hollywood in the years when films like The House Party series, Malcolm X, and Mario Van Peebles Posse were being produced. We get to hear how Mike's career found its feet amongst this history, as well as some more freewheeling talk about black film today, John Waters, Eddie Murphy, Steven Spielberg, The Rock, TV's Empire, and Blackish, The Black Exploitation Era, and more. Hang in for a somewhat lengthy but spirited conversation, and afterwards, check out Mike's work on YouTube, including his fascinating short, Who is Chris Rock? Capturing the baby-faced comedian at the age of 23, telling his story so far while he sits on his living room couch with his contradicting mother. But now, let's head over to the kitchen table where things begin. The fruits is coming, the fruits is coming, the fruits is coming. 
I'm here with Mike Dennis uh, at the kitchen table. And uh, I met Mike years ago just outside of screenings. He hosts real black production events that promote African-American and black film around the Philadelphia area. And I just always knew Mike is a great guy to talk to. So when I started doing these podcasts, uh, he was just on the short list of uh, somebody great to talk about film with. And it was only, uh, you know, I guess I'm not, this is why I'm not such a great networker. It was only oh, okay. in, the, in, in the last uh, couple of days when I looked at, at Mike's bio that I realized what an accomplished uh, man he is. Uh, I didn't realize that you were the director of Philly Boy, the movie about the great uh, rapper MC Breeze. Um, which I saw at the I House yes. and uh, was uh, really uh, taken with. It's a really warm and wonderful documentary. But you're an award-winning filmmaker. You hold degrees from New York University and the American Film Institute. You've done a series of documentaries about Philadelphia black music, not just counting the, the MC Breeze documentary, but also one on Ursula Rucker, the great poet, and, uh, and, and much more. Your company, Real Black, is committed to defining and nurturing an audience for African-American film. You've uh, run Real Black TV for uh, for years uh, with millions of YouTube Since hits. 2007, yeah. And uh, and uh, you have a lot you have a lot going on, including two films currently at work, a film called Black Film Now and Last Night at the Five Spot. I've also heard you uh, recently on WURD. Yeah, I sit in with uh, Stephanie Renee on Fridays from 11 to noon. You know, subject to change, when, depending on when you're listening to this. You know, like, uh, I don't have a contract, so... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's it's still I'm still on probation, but yeah, uh, talking about black film, which is what I really love. You know, uh -huh. it's what I love to do. Yeah, I was, I was talking earlier. I kind of like to hear people's origin stories. And when when did you really start getting serious about film as a as a young man? It's weird. I guess uh, I've always liked watching TV. As you know, somebody I, I was born born in 1969. You know, so I was a child of the 70s. Grew up watching a lot of TV. Uh, you know, after school Brady Bunch and all that kind of where, stuff. Where was this at in Philadelphia? In Philadelphia, Mount Airy, mm -hmm. uh, Boyer Street, near Mount Pleasant. Uh, for those who know Philly, a very suburban, very you know, in relation to the rest of Philly, very very quiet, almost like the suburbs. Very uh, very woodsy kind of. Uh, a little bit, but kind of city. Like you know, Ellet Street was kind of rough mm -hmm. by comparison. You know, there, there's some rough spots, but it was still you know. Uh, you know, I can't say I grew up in the hood, you know, yeah, I, yeah. but, uh, but it was a fairly predominantly mixed neighborhood and Mount Airy at one point, uh, got, uh, the designation from us news and world report that it was, uh, the most racially diverse neighborhood in the whole country, something like that. So, yeah, I mean, it must've been a, a neighborhood that really, uh, pushed down the boundaries of, of where African-American people could live, uh. Uh, yeah, my grandparents, they they grew up in North Philly, and, and my grandfather grew up in Maniunk, you know, which which is predominantly white neighborhood. He was raised as a Quaker, but, uh, you know, the, they, um, they moved to Mount Airy originally on Cliveden Street in the early 60s, and a few years before, or no, probably late 50s, early 60s, and then around 1966, 67, they moved to Boyer Street, which is where I grew up, and I spent all my years, and had my own room, which I found, I found out later was, like, something that was pretty rare, and, you know, when <laughs> I... Was there a TV in the room? I had a paper route, so yeah, I, I, um, I had, a, I had my own little 10-inch color TV, I wish I still had it, um, and, uh, when I, when I was, 
I was very lucky, you know, as a kid. So when I was like around 12, 13 years old, the RCA Select Division uh, CD, DV player, or whatever it was, a late disc player came out. <laughs> and uh, that was the one that was like a giant floppy disc. The discs were square and slid into the. It was, uh, it was in a cartridge, but it was like a really thin record. It had needle grooves. Yeah, I guess. You know, played by with a, a stylus. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so RCA put them out, and that, that was like my first introduction to home video. And then uh, I guess I must have been around 14, like yeah, 15 years old. I, I saved up and I bought my first VHS player for $219. It was like a red, sharp uh, VHS player. And it was exciting because it played all three speeds. It was uh, S P L P N E P and had a little switch and so uh, that's you know I couldn't I didn't have a camera so I couldn't make my own films then but what I would do I'd take movies from the select division and play them like the howling and then recut them to music wow, really? in, in the uh, VCR and stuff like that so I was making my own like little music videos as early as then and then um, you know just always wanted to make uh, um always wanted to make movies and when I, I went to Central High School I had a chance to go to film school and uh, right when I was graduating is when Jim Jarmusch with Strange in Paradise and Spike Lee with She's Gotta Have It put out these amazing little gem black and white movies uh, uh, on Island Pictures and they both were NYU graduates so that, that definitely was a major factor in me deciding that I wanted to go to NYU. So. Oh wow, yeah, because that was a, 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 the seeds of a real a new movement of independent film. What really became, you know, almost codified as American independent film at that point. Absolutely, absolutely, um, and guerrilla filmmaking too. Yeah. You know, like you, you know, like Kevin Smith has said this. Like he, he could, he couldn't look at what Spielberg was doing and saying I could do that. But he could look at something like a she's got to have and say that 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 I can do. That's a story I can tell, you know. So when I got there, the this the it was still sort of like on the edge of that sort of like smithereens kind of Susan Seidelman sort of really artsy, ambitious, uh, like, you know, Lower East Side. We're going to just make a film with our friends, sort of punk rock movement, Liquid Sky and Liquid one Sky kind group. of filmmaking, yeah. you know, uh, Mondo, New York, those kind of things. And, you know, even Mondo, New York was something like you, you you'd walk the the class and you see Charlie Barnett performing in Washington Square Park and and things like that. So there's a lot of energy there, but it wasn't necessarily commercialized yet. I think the the wave that of NYU students that I came in at were the ones that were like influenced by like John Hughes and I think uh, the very first day of school we went to the auditorium and Chris Columbus came and spoke and he had just graduated the year before so what what year did, were you uh, did you uh, start there? I started there in I guess eighty seven or eighty eight I got out in ninety one so yeah uh, fall of eighty seven was mm -hmm. my first year at NYU so Chris Columbus he came back and he was like the prodigal son because he had just directed Adventures in Babysitting and mm -hmm. he was sort of saying like hey you know the rule uh, you know the way the way it works. You know, and every time somebody breaks into the door, uh, 
they change the combination. So it's like <laughs> it's good for like one or two people, and then you got to figure out another way. And so, like uh, you know, Robert Townsend did it with credit cards. Nobody else got through making movies on their credit cards. Everybody else went insanely broke and in debt because of the credit card scheme. But but so he was saying, like, you know, the, the deal here is like you you work your way up to making a half hour short film that becomes your calling card, and then you get an opportunity to get an agent or whatever, and and make it in Hollywood or whatever. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, freshman year, that was my ambition. Like, wow, you know, like I want to be like the next John Hughes. I really was influenced by breakfast club and 16 candles and all that stuff. And I said, what? And the movie that really turned me was house party. I was like, wow, th- these guys are basically doing a John Hughes movie, but, but with black characters and a hip hop crowd, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, for for a while, I thought that's that's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to be. Um, and then I got um, my first internship at the Black Filmmaker Foundation, and mm-hmm. that that kind of pointed me in the direction of making films. You know, good movies about black folks. What was coming out of the the Black Filmmakers? Uh... Well, for those who don't know, uh, BFF was uh, the Hudlin Brothers organization. They started, society. Yeah. No, no, House Party oh, and Boomerang and yeah. stuff like that. Um, Hughes Brothers, you're thinking Hughes you know. Brothers, yeah. But um, so they they had an organization in New York, and at the end of House Party, it says like you know like shout out to the Black Filmmaker Foundation. So like you know me, you know being like 18 years old and seeing that, I was like, wow, you know I gotta I gotta get with these guys. So you know my first internship that I applied for was at BFF, and um, you know didn't really get a chance to spend much time with. Reggie and Warrington, although, you know, Warrington I now consider a, a true mentor. He's a big, very big supporter of Real Black. Um, but, um, you know, at the time, Monica Breckenridge was running it, and she was like an actress, you know, and she was put in charge as the executive director of running things. So we put together programs um, for the filmmaking cognoscenti in, in the city, and my job would be to, like, send press releases to the Amsterdam News and, and try and get information together for the newsletter which will come out once a month and things like that very similar to what i'm doing now with real black to be be quite honest but um it's the beginning of the sort of promotion business there yeah well you work you work from your strengths you know like Mm -hmm. uh you know you take all your life experiences kind of guides you into like figuring out how to do things on your own um so so bff you know they they when I was there, they were doing Boomerang, you know, so I got invited to the, the premiere at the Ziegfeld or, of uh, Boomerang with Eddie Murphy and stuff like that. And Eartha, Eartha Kitt. Eartha Kitt. That was a great scene, yeah. yeah. Um, Chris Rock, you know, really early movie. Martin Lawrence, you know, for those who don't know Boomerang, you should definitely check it out. And there's so many, so much talent in that film that would later go on to great things. Uh, so... Involved with BFF, and then later I got an internship with the Cosby Show, and and uh, you know, right like year seven, I think season seven, I was there, and it was it was just a great experience. There was a lot of uh, optimism that that black film was going to finally be accepted by Hollywood and the mainstream. Mm-hmm. There was a there was a great cover story in the New York Times with uh, John Singleton, Mario Van Peebles, the Hudlin brothers, Spike Lee, Maddie Rich, Charles Lane, where it said, they got to have us, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's a, a lot of energy going in the direction of now that there's an audience of young black people that are attracted to uh, African-American film, that Hollywood is definitely going to come 
to the call and, and create this opportunity for the mainstream. And, and for a little while, it was like that. You know, you had Jackson May Henry with uh, New Jack City creating work and stuff like that. But but it kind of tapered off. And, you know, by that point, you know, I was still in the thick of it when I, I got to I got to AFI, which was uh, another experience like NYU, the attitude was make a movie by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. And AFI was very regimented in terms of, okay, you're the director. You 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 can't sit in on the producer class. When you talked about being at AFI, I'm, I'm curious, how old were you uh, at this point? Uh, 23. Wow. Socially, 24. what was it like to suddenly be in Los Angeles amongst all these well, I, I think I would have liked L.A. more if I had a car the first year. Oh, really? Without a car? A car huh? walk. But I was a directing fellow, so people treated me pretty good. Like It was it was like a little mini version of Hollywood. Like the, Everybody was divided into their own things, like producing fellow, directing fellow, uh, art, dis, art direction, uh, editing. But we all um, had our own disciplines yeah. that we had to, to stay focused on. So... As the directing fellow, it was the producer's job to like take you to lunch and mm-hmm. you know try and convince you that you're the guy to direct their film, you know their their project. So they I got treated like a king the whole time I was there. And and uh, Deju, who was the teacher then at the, at the time, you know he said, uh, you know you you have it's a very safe space to make work. You have a three picture deal, and that was great. And then as soon as you graduate, if you don't have anything lined up, it's back to PAing, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I tried for about six months or whatever after I graduated to uh, stay, but it, you know, it just wasn't making enough money. I was working at Virgin Megastore, just didn't wasn't making enough money to maintain LA. So I, yeah, I yeah. came back to Philly, and I think that was the best decision I could have made. Yeah, yeah. I also uh, spent the the '90s out in the, the West Coast, out in San Francisco, and had a great time and a lot of great experiences. But I'm I'm really glad of my decision to come back to Philadelphia in 2000 as well. There's a, a Wait, lot so of you're energy from here. Philly. Yeah, I'm from South Jersey originally. Okay, okay. Yeah, okay. but I, I in the '80s I was working at Tower Records and with King Brit and and uh, you know a lot of interesting oh, people. That's crazy. No, I worked at Tower Records too in New York when I was as an NYU student and. Um, and then I worked at Virgin Megastore in Los Angeles, you know. So, you know, that, that was always my go-to to, to work, you know, at a record store. I even bought for Video Library in, in Philly. Yeah. Yeah, I spent a lot of years off and on at Video Library. And that was always my go-to. And then, you and know. That way, if you had a job, at least it was a job where you spent eight hours talking about film. Yeah, I probably, I probably stayed in the womb a little too long working those jobs. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's too safe a space. But it's, it's kind of stressful and disappointing to think as an artist you can't find a job like that anymore you know yeah. there's it just doesn't exist you know mm-hmm. so but so on on one hand that's really awful but on the other hand it makes you more resourceful as far as you know making do with what you have mm-hmm. your your skills So when, when did you come back to Philly? I came back to Philly. Tupac got shot. Um, well, I had nothing to do with it. 
Um, <laughs> Time for you to leave town. <laughs> but I remember when I remember I was at Virgin Mega Store and somebody said Tubac got out of jail. I'm like, get out of here! That guy's never getting out of jail. This is Suge bailing him out. Yeah. You know? So, you know, a couple of days later, come to find out he's running around the mall, spending all kinds of money and stuff. And then California Love comes out, and then, um, you know, in the midst of all that, the all eyes on me summer. Uh, you know, I, I have to pack up, get on the midnight train to Georgia and head back to Philly. <laughs> and I, I remember I was sleeping on my grandmother's floor and um, and Tupac got killed. So, uh, so like the summer of 96, I was back. And then, and it was really frustrating because I, I literally, I had no place to stay. My grandmother sold the house and I was um, sleeping on her living room floor. And I, you know, I'd wake up in- incrementally and I'd start typing my screenplay because, you know, at this point, the rule had changed from making uh, a short film, which I was un- unable to do at NYU. I did like a 10 minute film mm-hmm. and everybody's like, well, no, you need to make a half hour film. Right. So I didn't what quite was your, have what was your 10 minute film. Huh? It was called The Hardest Part. It starred Seth Gilliam, who was in Oz and, and uh, Walking Dead. He, I met him on The Cosby Show. So he was a star. My roommate, uh, uh, Isaac Bright, who went by Asaf at the time, he was the co-star. And then a very beautiful woman, uh, Ivana Kopatz. Uh, her, she's been on tons of stuff. I mean, if you saw her, you'd, you'd say, oh, yeah, I've seen her before. Um, I, this is her first film. She was like a model, Wilhelmina fashion model. Not Wilhelmina. It was another, the other big highfalutin fashion agency in New York. Uh, and she lived in my building. Like, for whatever reason, I had scraped up enough money to live on Park Avenue South LA. in the basement. Mm-hmm. And the modeling agency had put her and, like, five other women up in, like, a penthouse apartment. You know, <laughs> so. But the doorman kept saying, you got to meet this girl. You got to meet this girl. So, I, I, me and all my shyness, I slipped a note under her door. Like, hey, you know, I hear you're really pretty. I'd like you to be in this movie. And she read it. And, um the funny the funny thing is i've never told this story in public but the funny thing is uh she agreed to do it she asked me do you know brett ratner <laughs> right and i'd met brett and i wasn't necessarily a fan of brett yeah you know because yeah. his personality can rub people the wrong way but it's so, a yeah. very believable scenario so well to say the least but so i said <laughs> yeah i know brett right she said oh yeah brett's dating my my roommate um of course I'll do your film. So I was like, oh, okay. All right. So big shout out. Thank you, Brett Ratner, for our encounter at NYU. I would have not had Ivana in my film. but um, So, yeah. So It was a fictional film? It was, yeah, it was, it was about a guy. Film. It's not on. I haven't posted online um, yet, but it's on my DVD collection that I put out. That's out my shows. Um, it's just about a guy who's waiting for... Uh, this girl to show up and and his friend is like the voice of doubt you know just like don't believe that she's ever going to show up and it's sort of it's you know it played a few festivals and won a couple things and what the main thing was it got me into afi so if Mm -hmm. if there's a lesson to be learned it's like work begets work you know like you you have to keep making stuff in order to get like you might not make something and get a hundred percent to where you want to be but if you just make something and get it out there it's definitely going to take you to whatever the next step is that that's in in your path you know so like i had always been a fan of american film magazine like i had a subscription to american film when i was like 12 you know so i always had this imagination of what um 
AFI was about. But I had no in in I had no inclination to going there. I didn't even know about it really. Um, but they were doing a a scholarship or a fellowship um, for minority students or whatever. And I had sent in a short screenplay to apply. And they were like, we're not doing, you know, we're doing the fellowship, but we're only giving it to like two people. But basically, if you want to come and study here, you can. Right. So I was like, wow, you know, so that's where things kind of lined up. Like I always said, when I graduated NYU, I was completely exhausted. I, I felt like I everything that I ever learned from school, I'd put into this little 10-minute short film. But I knew that there was no way that I could possibly work in the industry with the skill set that I had. Because, you know, it, it just was a very guerrilla way of making films. And, and I, I knew that I didn't know enough to keep working. So I knew I needed to learn more. And I also felt like I wanted to go to L.A., but I would never go out unless I was invited out to L.A. So... That was like the perfect opportunity. I got invited to study film at AFI. So I had like a two year free trip to just invest in film and be in the in the thick of it. So, wow. Yeah. But mm-hmm. uh but yeah, so but I was back home, I was writing um writing my script because the rules had changed, uh, from making a short film to now it was about spec screenplay. So it was like you know, lots of people are buying you know, Hollywood are, are buying up spec screenplays, scripts written without any kind of option or anything, purely on speculation for millions of dollars, <laughs> right? There must have been one case that uh, that people held up as being the, the the fact that this was true. Well, there was a whole book. There was a guy. I don't know if he still does it, but he was putting out this spec screenplay directory where he made like a list and like mimeographed like a list of all the spec scripts and log lines of screenplays that had sold in the last five years and what they sold for. Oh, right. So I, I, I got, I paid him a fortune to get the book <laughs> and I'm looking and I was like, Oh wow, that, that, you know, so I'm like thinking, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write this screenplay. So, um, you know, my genius idea, it could still work. I don't know. Was this your commercial idea kind of, and not a personal it's not always idea? Commercial ideas. Remember I, I wanted to do John Hughes stuff, you know, so I've never, <laughs> It wasn't like gonna be some serious art thing, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and then we had guys come to AFI and be like, you know, uh, you know, don't spend your own money on making movies. You know, get somebody to invest. And if you really want to sell a script for a lot of money, put lots of stuff in it that's gonna cost money. Because if you make this little one character character piece, they're gonna give you like five dollars for it, you know. But if you put lots of special effects, it's like. In order to get the movie made, it's going to cost millions of dollars. So they're going to have to give you millions of dollars for the idea. That's great. So, you know, my genius idea, and, and you're welcome to steal it if you want, Dan. Because <laughs> um, I don't I don't know if it's ever going to... But it was it was called uh, Get on the Good Foot. And it was... Uh, James Brown reference. Yeah, it was, a, it was sort of like Martin Lawrence was hot at the time, right? So it was about like this fast-talking black kid who works as a... Uh, a uh, forest ranger, like a park ranger at the Liberty Bell. And he gets ca- he gets caught up uh, with this sort of Foxy Brown sort of uh, spy, mm-hmm. like this black woman who's like a, a secret agent kind of thing. And uh, he witnesses a death. And uh, in order to get him to tell what he knows, she has to 
pose as undercover as, as his girlfriend and get to know him closely and mm-hmm. and get caught up. And, you know, and that idea's been recycled. There was a big show on Fox that was kind of like that with uh, uh, Chuck or something like that. Yeah, I could imagine being a Philadelphia carriage dri- driver or something like that. You know, you it was all kinds of stunts the, yeah. and you know, and it had like a Pan African reference. I mean, yeah, I, good luck getting it made. But the whole the the whole the the genius where I'm a genius. <laughs> Was that it was basically a takeoff on the man who knew too much. Ah. So at the end, instead of like this big classical music concert, it was going to be a classical treatment of James Brown music. Like at the Academy of Music and and, uh, the Philadelphia Orchestra was going to play all the songs of James Brown orchestrally. (laughs) And there was going to be an assassination attempt during the middle of this performance or whatever. So... um, I'm thinking, so, of, I'm thinking of the the trombone hits in Sex Machine or something like oh it was on the last one <laughs> it would have been brilliant yeah was, you know so you know I, every morning I get up and I work on that thing for like a year trying to get it together and then I, I you were know, trying to write jokes in it and everything and it was the, good it was yeah. you know for what 25 years old it was it was a good script I mean I just you know the problem was getting people to read it. You know, yeah, like yeah. once it's done, now you need an agent or a lawyer or somebody. I had no connections to getting it read or getting any kind of feedback or anything like that. So yeah, it definitely sounds like you have the genre down. It sounds like you know you you, know, you were making a vehicle that would work to show off a comic talent like that. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, that was that was always my aim to to. Um, I always felt there's a lot. And I still feel there's a lot of underutilized black talent. You oh, know, yeah. um, and that if I could be that go-to guy to create vehicles for the, all these comments and, and deaf comedy jam was huge at the time so there's no shortage of black comedy talent that would be in need of comedy vehicles you know yeah. so that, that was the thought i mean now you know if you were if you if i had to make that argument now i'd say there's no shortage of really talented black women actors or actresses mm-hmm. women actors uh female actors whatever the term would be and you know, you you'll always win if you can write a, a strong character piece for a black woman because you got like five that you could pick from: Zoe Saldana, Gabrielle Union, Kerry Washington. Uh, on on the older side, you have Viola Davis. I mean, there's and they're they're definitely gonna be looking for quality stuff. So that's my tip to people to people listening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, write write for whatever the trend is. You know, so couldn't get anybody to read the script, and then. Um, Beloved come, comes along. Well, yeah, Beloved comes along. Oh, and I should say Night Shyamalan's a year behind me at NYU. Okay. So yeah. that, that that was a prime example of the spec screenplay thing. Like Six Cents, he sold for $3 million. So like a million dollars for the script and $2 million to direct it or something like that. Yeah, and for know, people so, who might not know, Shyamalan's you know, based out of Philadelphia. Yeah, he's from Philly, and he was a year behind me at NYU. So that, that's all I needed to see his name in the spec screenplay directory and say, wow, you know, I could be that guy too. You know, of course, um, you know, I, I, just regardless of the merits of Get on the Good Foot, I just couldn't get him to read it. And then um, and it, was, it didn't really get past, like, maybe three drafts, and then I kind of hit a wall, like it there's some good parts in it, but it's it's really a lot to construct a feature screenplay and make it tight and stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you can understand, but but at the same time, if you're just presenting the idea, they're going to rewrite it anyway. So it you know you shouldn't have any fear about getting 
your stuff scene. But I, I ended up getting on Beloved after about a year of being in Philly. Mm-hmm. And that was the most validating experience of my life because I, I got to work very closely with Jonathan Demi. He was very open, very, like, you know, he'd see you every day and he'd know your name and, you know, he'd, he'd take time with you and he, he could see that I was hungry. And I know he had a good reputation in town when he was shooting that in Philadelphia that he really seemed like he made a lot of local friends. Oh, it was great. Well, he had done Philadelphia here first and I guess he had talked to Sharon and said, I really love this space. I want to bring more work here. And so uh, they managed to bring Beloved and I guess, I don't know what the mandate was, um, but but they they were looking for me. They were mm-hmm. looking for talented black people to work on the crew to be a part of the film so mm-hmm. the you know the, a lot of black folks i know to this day the, that was the first opportunity to break into working on film sets mm-hmm. was beloved so um you know big up to oprah big up to jonathan demi for for having that vision to make that film um and it was just validating for me because all the stuff that i learned in film school i got to see actually happening in practice like it wasn't like you know, it was the same language, the way the way the day was structured and the responsibilities of the director and everything. So it just made me feel more whole and to put some money in my pocket. And, um, you know, so I could buy more time to work on more stuff. And uh, eventually I, I got after that, maybe uh, about two years after I ended up working at KYW as an editor for the news and uh learn they actually got paid to learn how to do nonlinear editing like i could do little rudimentary editing with tape mm-hmm. uh and they were getting a nonlinear system in and they were like well we're gonna pay you know we have to get this in so we're gonna train you how to use it i have to admit i don't know what a nonlinear oh well editing nonlinear is. editing uh is non-destructive it's on computers as opposed mm-hmm. to tape-based editing where it's so this is in the like late '90s when things were really starting to head shifting over to yeah. like Final Cut Pro. I mean, our our system was called Newsbyte, but mm-hmm. um, it's basically the same thing. Uh, the, the data exists on a hard drive, and uh, a, a editing software creates reference points for where the where to start and stop the image. Whereas before, you had a physical tape, and you would make a copy of that tape onto another tape. So you weren't necessarily cutting the negative but you were losing a generation every time you made an edit yeah, yeah. so so it was it was a a big it was huge it was huge for the industry i mean apple was at the forefront of it with final cut pro and just you know so i was making a lot of money editing more money than i've ever seen before since working in the union at kyw and it gave me incredible amount of credit which i in, immediately s- wasted on getting my own cameras and gear and editing software and stuff, you know, put like 10 grand into that and um, made my first films. Was MC Breeze the first big project you did? Yeah, I did two. Uh, I always do two together at the same time. I don't know why. I, I just um, for my own like insecurity thing. Like, like if I can put two out at the same time, then you have to like one of them. Like, but if I just put one movie out and it sucks, then I'm gonna feel bad for a long time. So uh, I did concurrent to Philly Boy 
a story about MC Breeze in 2001, 2002. Um, I was doing a movie about the the Black Lily, the Jazzy Fat Nasties, me and my mm-hmm. friend Daryl DeBrest. Um, we started going down to Black Lily shows, and you know, I told him, hey, I study film. I, uh, can we come and film this? So let's, let's stop there for a second, though, and talk about the, that. That was a, a very exciting moment in Philadelphia culturally when the Five Spots started doing the the Black Lily shows. And uh, oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. He, and he, you he, thought it would, you it would never end. Now, I mean, the people that were involved in that are still working to this day, which is yeah. fabulous. But but now it's really history. It's really you know, 15, when did it start? Fifteen years ago or so, or. Oh, at least uh, 1999, yeah, was yeah. the first Black Lilies. We started filming, Daryl started filming some shows in 2000. I started showing up in 2001, and we we filmed off and on a lot of the shows. What, what, what were you filming? The, uh, I mean, yeah. the performances every Tuesday night at the Five Spot, which was a club at 2nd and Bank Street, uh, which is off of Market Street. Um, the, it would be like a, a showcase for black women or women artists, uh, you know, that was basically bankrolled by Rich Nichols and the Jazzy Fat Nasties. Rich Nichols, the late Rich Nichols, uh, was the manager of The Roots. And, uh, you know, he, he was really a true visionary. You know, so he, you know, I think he, he, he had aspirations to really be like a mogul, you know, so he... He saw an opportunity with the Jazzy Fat Nasties and Jaguar Wright and things like to sort of like get them on a record label and have them put out records. The records didn't necessarily sell as much as they could have. I mean, The Roots never really sold a lot of records. I mean, yeah, they, they were, uh, uh, I know, uh, were much talked about in critical circles, but it took a while for their, their sales to really uh, reach the, uh, the, the, the right. I don't know. If, I don't know if they've ever gone platinum, you know. Yeah. But but what what they were cultivating was sort of this alternate left of center voice for black music, you know. So and the artifacts are, are there, you know. A lot of the music that came out of the jazzy uh, out of the Black Lily, the Jazzy Fat Nasty's two albums and Jaguar Wright, mm-hmm. uh, Dice Raw had an album, you know. Those were all Rich Nichols acts, and then later. Uh, you had Jasmine Sullivan, Kindred the Family Soul, Lady Alma, you know, all performing there and getting opportunities. So, um, you know, at the time, there was still a record industry. So <laughs> you could you could cultivate your act. And then, you know, Jill Scott being the beacon of, of it all, yeah. uh, you know, and Music Soul Child. And people would say, like, wow, we like music. We like Jill Scott. Where where did these people come from? Is there more like it? You know, so... Uh, you know that that was sort of the birth of neo soul. I mean, maybe D'Angelo and and Erica Badu or uh, came around the same time that were more nationally known. But Philly really was the epicenter for that movement of yeah, music yeah. at that time. And the Roots, you know, played on so many of those records as well. Absolutely, the Soulquarians, yes, yeah. as a producing team, and you know, um, you know, they're, they're they're still working, but the energy at that time was incredible and. And it seemed like the cool thing about Black Lily was that you could be in the audience one week and then you get inspired and like two weeks later you're on stage and you perform with the band, you know, and a lot of a lot of artists just, you know, I think you need a support system. You know, that's I think that's the one thing I feel that I'm lacking as an artist here in Philadelphia is like Mm -hmm. like being able to look at somebody else who's doing stuff and say, wow, I could do that too. Let me, 
you know, let me go out and jog. Let me work on this thing, you know. So, and I think that's, it's not to say that there aren't people that are doing stuff in Philadelphia. It's just everybody's kind of doing it in their own corner. There's not the sort of space to congregate and network and talk. I think it's a wider problem in our society today is is the sort of uh, dwindling of community and how... Uh, self-absorbed we are in our own, you know, computerized worlds in each corner and stuff. And I feel like there's less of a, a communal yeah. space that people are gathering in. It, it could be, it could be, and it could be my arrogance. I don't know. Um, you know, but but I, that was a very special time. And what I didn't realize at the time, I thought I was just in there documenting, like, wow, this is some amazing stuff happening. I, you know, we need to be here. Somebody needs to be here that's filming that doesn't have a drink in their hand. You know, they can really, <laughs> like, take this and just make sense out of it. And, you know, like, there are people there. Not too many people were shooting because people didn't have equipment. Yeah. You know, but, you know, if you did see somebody filming, they might film like a little snippet of a song or they'd be like bouncing around to the music and stuff. And we were literally there to capture it. We were treating it like it was work, you know, mm-hmm. and we and we took great pride in the uh, the quality of the the work that we shot. And I didn't realize like just as much as the people in, in on stage were getting their practice, we were getting our practice, you know, without having like I we could go to a show on Tuesday and film would be like work, be like four hours of nonstop shooting. But I would take from that four hours or eight hours of tape, two cameras, you know, I would cut maybe one or two songs and I could deliver it the next week and show to the band, hey, look, this is what I did from last week's show or whatever. So um, it was giving me practice as well, you know, and it, it definitely shaped, you know, helped me force some relationships, friends that still have to this day and helped solidify my reputation the other movie was Philly Boy a movie about MC Breeze, which, which was like somebody told me, like I had a forty-five minute movie, and somebody said, "Hey, you know, if it's six, uh, Nadine Patterson said, hey, you know, uh, it's considered a feature if it's sixty-five minutes or longer." So I made it sixty-five minutes, <laughs> and um, yeah, I had my first feature. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that film because it is—it's a, a film that really captures uh, a lot of the incredible Philadelphia culture. There's a great sense of of uh, what the the music scene and the rap scene was like in those or those days True. of the seventies. Well, yeah, I love MC Breeze. Don't get me wrong, I love MC Breeze because he was the funniest guy. Like I, I like Will Smith and Jeff and the Fresh Prince, and I like Schooly D. They were all contemporaries of MC Breeze. Um, but he had this record, Discombobulator, Bobulator, which was, to me, hilarious. You know, when I listened to MC Breeze's voice, I thought immediately of, like, Joe Tex and whatever. I said, wow, this guy's really funny. And, and you know, from a kid in my area, I saw all these rappers coming out of West Philly. I had sort of my conception of who they were and everything. So when I got my cameras and stuff, I said, I want to make a movie. Like, you know, I wanted, the original intention was to do, like, what Ken Burns did with jazz, but for the history of Philly um, hip hop, mm-hmm. you know, to like go chapter by chapter and tell the whole story of, of Philly old school rap. And we ran into the, a problem with licensing and archival because it turns out very few people while in New York, there's like a film scene that was ran parallel to the hip hop scene. So there's lots of, documentation visual documentation of early hip-hop for the most part coming out in new york but in philly there was like one guy who had a video camera and he'd shoot all the shows and he was an asshole rest in peace 
he would not let me see any of the footage oh, and man. he would not give me access to the stuff and it just really curtailed the opportunity to tell that story at the time so that's a shame yeah. yeah he died so it's it's too bad but maybe maybe it'll come back around let me not put that into the world um but uh so we couldn't get any archival and then the rights issues but breeze owned his own record label so he we still you know by you know we could get away with that but we couldn't necessarily make a movie about schoolie d yeah put all his music in and not think about having to pay for it or get sued so so we the original Breeze idea kept was, it completely independent in that way. It was yeah. very independent. Uh, you know, there, there's some gray area there, but people mm-hmm. aren't necessarily chasing after, you know, like there's a lot more wiggle room on, on doing an MC Breeze story. Or there's also a lot less commercial possibility, like, you know, uh, in terms of stuff. But, you know, Philly's all about under, underdog stories. Yeah, so, yeah. And I always root for the underdog. And I felt like people really needed to know who MC Breeze was. And I think it's such a strong piece. And I think it's one that's uh, it's only going to increase in strength as time goes by because, you know, it's it's a real great document of, you know, what the possibilities for a hip-hop star were at that time and to see him go through his transition and everything. Yeah, thank you. It's pretty rich. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. I think it still holds up. It's on YouTube, uh, Philly Boy. It's in seven parts. I think you can watch it. Like, we give it away for free. And then if you come to shows, of course, you can buy the DVD and support us. But, yeah. But, yeah, um, yeah, I was, I was, you know, he was a hero of mine, and, uh, and he, he turned out not to disappoint. He was a great guy. Um, we're still friends, and, and um, you know, he's still making music. He's still making movies and stuff. Yeah. So the, that was the that was the beginning, and then I think Gretchen Clausing called me. Yes, about when the screening series and stuff started. I mean, at the time, at that point, it was called Bring the Beat Back or something like that. Was the name of the company? It was a website. But when did uh, Real Black as a promotions uh, group really come about? Uh, Real Black started around that time. I I had bought the domain name Real Black. And that's real with two E's. R-E-E-L-B-L-A-C-K, with the intention of making a uh, magazine, you know, like a a fanzine for black film. Um, But I, you know, I could never get off my ass to sit and, this is a lot of work. That's a lot of work (laughs) to sit and and create something like that. So um, I had the domain name and Gretchen Clausen came to me and she said, hey, you know, we at first they wanted to show Philly Boy at the Prince Music Theater, and then she was like, "Hey, you know, can you program?" While she, because she ran things there, so I was programming there, and I and the idea, I had an idea for a screening series, where we did discoveries and rediscoveries of African American film, because I, I've been on the festival circuit and I met lots of filmmakers, and I said, "There's no black film festival really here in Philadelphia." Um, I'd love to be able to bring films that I get a chance to see and bring filmmakers you know that I meet to Philly to expose people to their work um so in December 2003 we started the Prince Music Theater and this is like you know this was just good timing like we made we made the first three shows free right which is something I learned from Black Lily which was like Black Lily it was only five dollars to get in which was a good thing it was a bad thing it wasn't enough to pay the artist but it was also gave the artist freedom because like for five dollars you have no right to complain like if you're not enjoying the artist you, you know it's, it's not like you're uh, feeling ripped off at the end of the exactly yeah. so we start we did uh, i think claudine might have been the first show the james earl jones and uh, yeah carol it had yeah. just come out on dvd and then we did 
let's do it again and uh i think the third one might have been that's the way of the world or watt stacks or something like that yeah you know but all sort of like 70s black exploitation at that time early 2000s all that stuff was starting to come back out on dvd for the first time that's the way of the world was a film i just discovered in a bargain bin somewhere as it stars earth wind and fire with uh harvey keitel as their record producer yeah i don't know if that was part of the prince series but the first time we showed that people it was part of the prince series i have the poster yeah so yeah people harvey keitel plays this record promoter no it been like everybody had heard about the movie yeah because of the album that's the way the world right so People, their expectations is like Earth, Wind, and Fire starring in the movie. They're acting in it and stuff. And then when you see the movie, it's really a Harvey Keitel movie. And Earth, Wind, and Fire is kind of playing in the background. But there's some brilliant scenes and insights that still comment on even today's record industry. Yeah, and there's a long scene at a, at a local uh, roller skating rink, I think, in Chicago, where mm. uh, they have Earth, and the Wind, and Fire playing. I think okay. it's really... At the beginning of the movie? Uh, I think it's about same. midway through. He, okay. takes, he takes the young pop act. He's... He's uh, romancing to, to see what the what the real music is. Yeah, and, the, and it's an incredible. You know, it's, it's a film like that that you know, low budget film. Uh, uh, over the years, it's it's the locations that can be so exciting on them. You know, my favorite scene in that is showing how they put the record together, like they're in the recording studio, and they kind of layer the sounds, like they show the kalimba, and then the guy brings in the drum and. And all this kind of stuff, and it just kind of insight into the recording industry. Yeah, the the plot is interesting i still love the film it's yeah, one of my favorite films and yeah. it just came out on blu-ray this is the lowest selling blu-ray in the, the history of scorpion releasing you know like you'll have no problems finding copies of this thing but it, it's there they have no plans of reissuing it so no, well. if you're a fan of earth wind and fire or whatever you you should definitely cop the blu-ray now before it becomes collector price but but um yeah, I mean, but people loved it. I mean, we sold out the first three shows, like mm-hmm. standing room only, and then we were getting uh, things to give away, and uh, you know, it was just like huge events. Like, I, you know, I really, you know, those are the salad days. I really remember those first nights. We had um, Shannon Newby and uh, Eshaw were were my partners at that time, and we did all those shows together. And uh, you know, it just showed that there was a hunger and a need to for black folks to see themselves in film, you know? So I think at that point, that's when I really made it my mission. If I, you know, I I was already making it my mission when I was doing the buying at video library. Like I I fought for us to have a black film collection or black film section. And, you know, uh, the owner there, you know, he's very good about letting us build the collection up uh, to, to be comprehensive. So that, that was my, sort of grad school in film but then being able to share it with other people that's been my my sort of life's mission at this point being able to bring give people access to information and and experiences that that I've had
it's it's when for me when I was a kid, I, I became really attracted to to black film as a young kid, and, and I, I don't think I really realized it at the time. But I think now it was much more of a an interest. I grew up in a very working class background, and you don't really see working class people mm-hmm. portrayed very much in Hollywood film either. So, well, you got a few. Come it, on, you got oh, more. Yeah. You got more than black folks. You got <laughs> uh, lots ab- of poor Harry and Son and all. Come on. Uh, yeah, but I mean, uh, those depictions felt. Well, very- how broke were you? Shit, <laughs> you know. Like he was like, they're not broke enough. You know, that's Paul Newman. He was like, oh. well, they were broke. They were broke, but they looked like Paul Newman and everything. I didn't. I don't know if the depictions are often really rang true to me. Okay, well, the, like uh, good times is real. Okay, okay. <laughs> it's ho- well, okay. All right, make your point. I'm, I'm but, but for me, I mean, I think that was somewhat my my attraction to uh, to the black film at the time was much more of a, a working class milieu was 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 part of it. You know, I guess. Are you talking about seventies black movies? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the problem with seventies black movies is we never escape. You know, yeah, somebody's yeah. got to die or, you know, somebody stays broke or you get sickle cell or, you know, you can never <laughs> be happy. You never see happy black people. And then, you know, not to say that we should be eating watermelon chicken and dancing all the time yeah. either. But there's a Franklin Ajay uh, bit where he says, you know, he couldn't really relate to the black film revolution of the 70s because he was neither a sharecropper nor a pimp. <laughs> <laughs> Franklin Ajay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> The fly from Car Wash, for those who don't know, yeah, he's yeah. brilliant. I, I would love, you know, I would love to meet him. He's, he's on my bucket oh, list. Boy, I've seen him a few times recently, crop up on panels and stuff, and he seems like the most fascinating guy in the room. I would, I would love to. Oh, I got to get him on my show. Then. Yeah, I, I know somebody knows him. So, so what is your relationship with the sort of the black exploitation era? Do you, do you cringe at that word? Even I wonder. I, I have no problem with it. I mean, we we I had Pam Graham my. TV show and I, you know people that were labeled that have a big problem with it so, and I, I can understand um, I think if you look at it pragmatically there are other forces at work that precipitated the downfall of black exploitation other than the labeling of it mm-hmm. um, you know the biggest one being the fact that um, you know y- you Black exploitation. The rise of black exploitation came as a result of the fact that the studios had no idea what to do. Like they were they were going out of business, and and they needed fresh blood, and and they exploited the fact that black people wanted to see themselves in film um, as a hero. As you know, rather than riot in the streets, they they showed. They showed some black supremacy on film. Yeah, and I'm sure there are a lot of black independent theaters and neighborhoods that economically supported this. Yeah, white happening. white flight. You know the fact that a lot of theaters were in in the inner city and and things like that. And it was phenomenal. You you could make a movie for like a million dollars and and get thirty million back. You know, so who who doesn't want to be in that business? But but uh, you know they just pumped out so much of it, and, and the majority of it is garbage. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so that helped and then the blockbusters is what really killed it you know when Star Wars and Jaws and all these movies came out and and we still suffer from that today like you know if you're given the option of going to see the Avengers or going to see something like Restless City mm-hmm. you know which is an affirm film very low budget independent film you know in a multiplex setting you're you're gonna spend your $13 on the Avengers you know and you're gonna wait for the smaller black film which probably has a smaller audience anyway you wait for that to come on Netflix or whatever and that you know so so you know but but I I think as documentation of the culture and the era I think there's we we've yet to sur- surpass it 
you know, I the fact that you you had all that music, you had all that fashion, you had really stars, like really bona fide movie stars that were of color. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you see that in today's black cinema. We're certainly not utilizing the music as well. I mean, there's 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 there are people. I'm not going to say there are people that are more talented than Marvin Gaye, mm-hmm. but why Pharrell? I'll just throw him out there because he got sued by Marvin Gaye. Um, <laughs> why Pharrell isn't scoring movies is, or, or why there's no, you know, this this sort of need to be mainstream. I think is is making it hard for there to to be true expression of, of blackness per mm-hmm. se in film. But I, I like what what you get in, in in exchange for that is more diversity. You don't have one film speaking for the entire race anymore. You're seeing a diverse range of expression and I think that's super exciting. Yeah. And there I mean uh there's still a, a large number of black cast films that, that that come out every year. More more than ever, but most of them are being made outside of the system and then being brought into the system by the studios for distribution. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what where distribution has left sort of the black film with all the recent changes in the last, you know, even 5 years. Well, make making the film and having people be less afraid to make the films is great not like not asking for permission the fact that you know you have this final cut pro and the digital everything has sort of democratized the production process so you know anybody has an idea the idea really becomes the thing especially when you're talking about independent film you know it's like it does your is your idea interesting and different that that becomes the main thing but uh, a lot of the films that we're seeing, they're getting all this attention. I don't know if you're, I mean, I'm sure you're aware, but I'm not sure if your listeners are aware. Like, like if it were up to the studios to d- determine whether the Butler or, um, you know, Selma or Top Five or Dear White People or Dope were to exist, they, they would have never gotten made. These were all movies that were made completely outside of the studio system and then bought. You know, auctioned off to studios for distribution. Yeah, I'm not sure I was I was aware of that. How independently produced they really were yeah. those films. So I mean, that's the exciting thing about now. You know, when you is the the filmmakers they're they're seeing ways outside of the the rules that were that preexisted. Like you got to go, you have to get an agent, or you have to sell your script to the studio and go through development and risk having it change from your vision. You know, now people can just go out find like. You know, Dear White People is a prime example. The guy, he he had the script for years, and he just uh, decided to put put out tweets under the handle Dear White People on, with the character's voice. And then he did, like, a concept trailer, and it got all kinds of attention. It went viral, and producers came to him and said, hey, what are you going to do with this? And he was in business. They did a Kickstarter campaign. They raised $100,000, and they were able to make the film, and they sold it for a couple million. And, and the movie's the most profitable movie um, ever done through Kickstarter. You know, oh, it's made more money based on how much it's raised than anything, you know, mm-hmm. and that's that's the power of the people and that's the that's the that's the uh you know, that that's 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 the film that's somebody taking initiative on their own career as opposed to waiting for somebody to discover them. And, you know, in this day and age no one's there's so much talent out there, and it's, and it's so recognizable that no one's really looking for you. Yeah. You have to make yourself seen. <laughs> I was thinking of, of what would be the recent uh, 
you know, large scale black cast films of the last few years. I think you've, you've rattled them off right there. Uh, uh, some of the higher profile ones, including Dope, which comes out this summer. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. You know, which I'll see tonight. I'm sure. And I'm hearing it's dope. You know, I'm hearing it's a great film. And <laughs> what do you, what do you think of this crop of films in general? Um, the black, this new wave that I call the new black film revolution. Um, I think it's empowering. I think, I think it's important that there's, there's a couple things. I think you, you have to give it up to Tyler Perry first and foremost because, you know, he he set the uh, he set it in motion mm-hmm. in one sense. Like he, he created an industry that, that showed there's a huge audience for this kind of film. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, I have a quote, Issa Rae. She said Tyler Perry was great. She he proved there was an audience. We also had people react so strongly. Like, That's not my story. That they decided they wanted to tell their own stories. Mm-hmm. So he definitely cast a die in motion. So this has been going on for about at least ten or fifteen years. This movement, um, but you're starting to see a blossom now because uh, of the diversity in stories. Uh, I I wish that. The studios, once they acquire the films, would take better care in marketing them. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like they kind of treat all black film the same, and they kind of just throw it against the wall, like they do at every movie that they acquire. Uh, sort of like I mean, they probably have an idea of how to market to the black audience or whatever, and so they everything sort of gets the pushed same into the stick. And but, but where where it hurts is with a movie like Beyond the Lights, which uh, it's going to be a little harder to market to a mainstream audience when you have two black people on a poster. What is Beyond the Lights? Beyond the Lights is Gina Prince-Bythewood's melodrama, romantic melodrama that came out last fall. It's about Gugu and Bathi Ra who is in Bell and Nate Parker and it's sort of like a a, sort of a takeoff on the bodyguard. You know, she's like a, a Rihanna, Beyonce type singer and she attempts suicide and the Nate Parker's the cop who rescues her, and then they start a romance and everything. It's a very, it's a really great story. It's really, you know, I cried. You know, I, I make no bones about it. But um, you know, it appealed to n- neither black nor white. But I think it's because they d- they kind of did like a boilerplate ad campaign for it. They didn't vary the images. The trailer they came out with in the spring was the exact same trailer that they came out in the fall with. Um, you know, they're they're not putting enough energy and resources into marketing the films uh a lot of times they'll they'll keep the same poster image for months whereas um you know more mainstream films white films you'll see a teaser then you'll see this poster there might be 50 variations of the poster try a few different ways to hook you that circulates online but they don't actually print the posters but you can still see different variations you know so but we're we're being given the same image over and over and it's kind of that image it was like well you know, you, you kind of hear about it and they say, well, I'll just wait for the video or I won't see it. And then the other thing, there's a lot of garbage black movies that are coming out, too. So the same you, in any media. I mean, there's always going to be, a, you know. A yeah. Lot but if you're start. if you if you're only marketing the same way to the same people, then they're, they're going to tune out after a while, too. It's like, well, you know, I don't need to see, you know, personally, I need to see every black film, uh-huh. but I don't expect everybody that's in my mailing list to be interested in every black film you know so i i have to every time we do a screening i've got to 
put it out there, but I also have to try and find a, a spin to make it interesting to that segment of the audience. It's going to be make it interesting, and I think a lot of times, um, and, and it, it probably has a lot to do with the fact that there aren't that many black folks in the studio in 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 the executive positions yeah. in the marketing situations or at the studios. You know, uh, I'm glad that they're not making decisions about what movies to make anymore. Uh-huh. Because that, you know, that that was that was pretty bad. Like, hey, let's put Cedric the Entertainer in a remake of The Born Identity. Hey, <laughs> Cedric's hot. Let's put him in a remake of The Vacation. You know, it's like how many bad, you know, where Cedric is very talented, but you know, just putting him in The Honeymooners just makes no <laughs> fucking sense to me. So, you know, I don't want to see that movie. You know, and you I know, know he, one, of the, one of the great comic performances of the last decade or so was him in. Uh, the barbershop films, is real, uh, real like w. w. C. Fields type. Uh, well, barber, well, you know that that that's a testament to his talent. The barbershop films, basically black films, you know, black black directors and black producer, you know, so and not really Hollywood's idea. Yeah, you yeah. know, um, you know that that's another thing. You know, like you know, I'm doing this thing, black film now. I mean, basically. You're not going to stop black people from wanting to tell their own stories, sure. but you're, you know, if these movies don't have a way to make money, yeah, the really talented people are not going to be able to continue to make work. Like, you know, Ava DuVernay, she's in a very privileged position now because her movies have not lost money, and she's also very gifted, visionary. You know, as long as she fights for her vision, she's going to have a career. Yeah. Um, but there are equally talented people like Tanya Hamilton or Barry Jenkins, you know, who, who did um, Night Catches Us and who did um, Medicine for Melancholy. Yeah. And uh, sort of two like, films I really particularly love, Medicine for Melancholy being from San Francisco. It was a profoundly yeah. moving film. I mean, me. if, if there are people that really were in a position where they cared, regardless of whether those movies made money, if they were in a studio system... If there are people in the studio system that had the ability to greenlight movies, um, those those folks should have gotten scooped up. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's just raw talent there. You yeah, know? The, the metaphor I often feel is uh, almost like a farming metaphor of uh, the movie studio is only worried about the apples that are coming off the tree, and they have no worries about the roots <laughs> of the tree at all. Right, they don't see any connection. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, but, was, yeah, they're they're two filmmakers who should have been really encouraged and funded, and and right. you know, led to blossom the way they needed to and, blossom. Uh, you know, I don't know when people are going to be listening to this, but like Haley Garima, he's doing an Indiegogo campaign right now for his next film and Julie Dash she's just completed an Indiegogo for her documentary I mean these are legends you know why why these folks aren't and why why they've got to wait 20 years between movies yeah. is like crazy to me yeah. you know I mean that's you know so so you know hopefully this way this crowdfunding and being able to gravitate finding your own audience and getting them to support you as an artist will ensure that these voices continue to make work but you know i'm i'm really concerned that that um you know at at a certain point like with the black lily you know there was an industry that would support you like if you got on stage you demonstrated you could put on a show week after week you're coming up with new songs and everything um there was an industry at that time that could look at that raw talent and say i want to give you a record deal flow tree yeah you know and they're, they're torn to this day. They're still selling records. You know, you know, where is that corollary 
in the film industry? Where where is that um, executive who is looking for the next black filmmaker? I mean, now Clint Culpepper has Will Packer and and uh, Lionsgate has Tyler Perry, but it seems to me that we've demonstrated enough power in terms of getting getting these movies to make money that that there should there should be a chicken in every pot. There should be yeah, yeah. opportunities for more black filmmakers to get to get put on yeah yeah in some ways i think you know the the uh attention is often focused on uh, encouraging the genius when it should be more about making sure there's a whole community and and the life cycle there that encourages geniuses everywhere kind yeah of, right? and and you know audiences also have their responsibility too it's you know like a, a lot of the reason like beyond the lights might not have made as much money like they they said from the maker of love and basketball you know like that's 20 10 years ago <laughs> you know but but uh you know why black folks didn't respond to that I don't, you know i don't know i mean we need to support these movies too especially if we hear that they're good Is there any films that you think of offhand of films that have gotten lost over the last few years that you particularly uh, have gotten completely lost? Well, ones that didn't really didn't find their audience uh, in a way that you thought they should. Oh, Beyond the Light certainly. That's that's the case study. Night Catches Us was one. Um, that was shot in Philly. That and was the, shot in Philly with Tanya Hamilton. Yeah, and, really um, plotted almost like a western about a. Uh, somebody who comes back to town and is unwelcome. Yeah, no, it was great. Great story, Kerry Washington. If it come out like a year and a half later, it would have been a bigger hit, I think. Although I think the distributor probably had a lot to do with the fact that it didn't do well. If you only open a movie in like eight cities, you can only expect it to do but so much, you know. Yeah. So, um, you know, get adequate distribution for films um, is is still a big issue. Uh, you know, Middle of Nowhere was one that really got lost in the shuffle. Um, just really a mess with the with the distribution. I'm not sure if I know what that is. That's Ava DuVernay's second film. Uh, mm-hmm. Won she won the Director's Prize at Sundance for it. Mm-hmm. She's the first Black filmmaker to win the Director's Prize at Sundance, and we put it out through a firm in theaters, and and we we made like half the money back. It made like two hundred thousand dollars in in a, a month or whatever. What's, um, what's the plot? plot basically. It's Emmy Yatsi, Cor- and and uh, Omari Hardwick, and David Oyelowo. But um, who played Martin Luther King? Who played uh, King and Selma. Selma? So uh, Emmy is, uh, you know, her husband's in jail, and she's put her whole life on hold while he's in jail, waiting for him to come out. And um, you know, he's kind of telling her, "Don't wait for me, don't wait for me." And then she meets a guy who's a bus driver. And they start a relationship. So now it's like sort of a love triangle, emotional love triangle. Um, you know, so, you know, really beautifully shot Bradford Young cinematography. Um, you know, it, but it took two years for it to come out on DVD. You know, just, uh, you know, and everybody, is, I think it's better than Selma, to be quite honest with you. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's more truer to uh, Ava's vision. And it's definitely one of the most important black independent films the last decade because because of 
so so much talent in, involved in it and what it stands for and the fact that it was groundbreaking in term, in terms of the awards and things mm-hmm. but um you know those those will be three i mean but you know there's there's always going to be a gem that gets lost in the shuffle and then some some of the stuff is budgetary like you know like i don't know there was a bidding war for top five i thought that was great film you know did it make as much money as paramount expected it to considering the cast and all that stuff um probably not you know but is is that chris rock's fault because he made a movie for nine million dollars or whatever whatever and it made 20 it wasn't you know it wasn't his fault that paramount paid like 15 for it no, and, and you're, another two and you're making a filmography of films for Chris Rock to have that film within the films he made. I think is a, an important, you know, uh, thing right. for him. Not, not all of his films were that strong a, a vehicle for him, really. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, clearly, if they had, if Hollywood had developed that film, they would have spent a lot more money than what what they acquired it for. But in terms of the way it was marketed, the fact that it was released right before Christmas instead of like in a slower time. You know, I think it affected the box office. So I don't, you know, personally, I don't know if it's lack of if it's because they're throwing everything against the wall kind of thing. Um, like the poster wasn't really dynamic in terms of like what what it was offering, and and uh, you know, so so are are they overbidding for these movies in order to kill it? Like, is it intentional to put um, Empire up against Blackish and and the um, you know, or is it just, you know, is it intention? Are they intentionally trying to sabotage this movement? Is the question, mm-hmm. or do they legitimately feel that there's enough audience out there to su- support what what they're paying for these shows or mm-hmm. or these movies? You know, I, I don't know. You know, yeah. But, but it, it, folks it, need to get put on. Yeah, I mean, there's only so much you're going to know on on the the motivation for it. But it's it's the what's it seems telling, suspect. What, to me. What's telling is is the the, uh, the outcome and, and their lack of interest. You know. Yeah, you know, you know. Again, we're not a big monolithic thing, and I think it's great that you can have a blackish and a mm-hmm. and an empire. But I I just question the wisdom of putting them up against one another. Absolutely, sure. You know, not to say that the audience for empire is the same, but I think uh-huh. I think it. it and or our viewing patterns are the same. Like a lot of people are watching Empire and binge, and binges. They're watching them all at one time. So yeah. yeah. So you know maybe I'm just I'm conspiracy theorist. Oh no, I'm, I'm, <laughs> nothing is having a conspiracy. I think I don't think we need to be conspiracy theorists anymore. When you read those Sony memos, I think they were pretty uh, open oh, the on Sony what their memos? attitudes were. Yeah. Well, you know that's that's a, that's the real dilemma. It's like you know how is is it can do you. Do you adopt the attitude that Hollywood is sort of broken and that you need to create work outside of the system or should the goal be to work to try and infiltrate the system in some way to to affect greater change? Yeah. Because, you know, you see a movie like um, San Andreas, you know, and it's like. You know, I was entertained by the film. I don't like disaster movies, but I was entertained by it. And I thought it was pretty cool that the lead was a black guy. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if most audiences are going to read him as a black character when you sh- when you see his daughter as this this little white thing running around. You know, so you know with no Afrocentric features. I'm like, you know, so so they're clearly not interested in selling The Rock as African American or yeah, anything. yeah, that's so certainly true. Uh, 
you know, so when you, and then, you know, what was the Bible picture that came out last year with um, uh, John Turturro as Moses or somebody, you know, so Gods and Kings, Exodus, Gods and Kings. I'm glad you could recall that. You know, these movies, they're not necessarily, like, I, the reason I'm interested in movies and I want to tell stories is to affect my people on the ground. Like, I want to, I want people to see themselves reflected. But Hollywood is a global thing and international audiences. The international box office for movies generally trumps what movies make domestic. That was one of the horrifying memos that came out was somebody talking about they shouldn't cast Denzel Washington in anything because it, it, they did the numbers on his international following and you're gonna if you have an action film without him you're gonna make you know 15 percent more or yeah something but like how do that. you change that you have to keep putting him in movies you have to keep putting idris elba in, in movies you know yeah um you know people are programmed i mean we're all programmed a certain way from what we we experience and see sure. to believe certain things you know mm-hmm. well the, that stuff goes into your subconscious and you're you're not in control of it from that point on really you yeah know? and the narrative that hollywood wants to tell you is that america's dominant and you know, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I don't know if it's true. Yeah. Um, we, culturally, we dominate because we we spread our seeds all over the place. Where, you know, like when you see a movie like Exodus, Gods and Kings in America, it's like, well, that's some BS. You know, yeah. um, you know, the, the, these these people they should have darker skin. But if you're selling it to Japan, you know, you're just reinforcing. The, the sort of Christian ethos, you know, and if you if you're selling it to people that are not sophisticated, they might think all oh, that CGI. Wow, that's really happening. Mm-hmm. That's how it really happened, and then subconsciously, that's how they really looked, you know. Yeah. So, I think there needs to be a deference to other cultures, and you're seeing it a little bit in more mainstream films, but not enough for my taste. You know, yeah. I, I, you know, television, you're seeing a little more. Yeah but not necessarily enough for my taste. Well, and for me, it just doesn't match the world I live in is the, the important part of it, you know? that uh, I guess, but Dan, I'm, I'm still kind of segregated, you know? <laughs> like, I, I can't say, you know, like, I mean, Friends, you know, there should be, if, if you're selling a show to a m- mainstream network audience, there's no reason why you shouldn't have black people on the show. Yeah. But in real life, in friends, they probably don't have that many black friends. That's probably true. You know, like I, I look at my Facebook timeline. I'm like, you know, I wish I had more white folks just to hear their opinion. But like Deepak Chopra was talking. He said, what's great about the Internet is that it's uh, it's creating this one, um, you know, the self-organizing groups of people. And we have the power to affect change and all this, whatever Deepak would say, whatever, he, however he would say. I say, so, yeah, we're all self-organizing, but we're all self-organizing into our own prejudice. Yeah. You know, what What was great about, you know, like the the best thing about NYU, like the first year you couldn't pick your roommate. Mm-hmm. You had to live with whatever asshole they decided you needed to live with. <laughs> right. So you, you learn tolerance, you know. Um, and then it wasn't until like your third year you could kind of go and pick your friends and mm-hmm. live with who you wanted to live. But for a while you, you were forced to deal with that. And in the workplace you're kind of forced to deal with that, although the hiring practices keep a lot of people out. But, yeah. but um, you know, I think, I think it's great. But we're, we're self-organizing into sort of narrow-mindedness. Yeah. A lot of people, they're reinforcing their ignorance with other ignorant belief mm-hmm. as, as opposed to using 
like seeking out and questioning things. Yeah, well, I think the studies show that looking at America block by block, that we're just as segregated now as we were in the 1950s. I don't think we've right. you know, integrated neighborhoods at any great you know extent that the, the right. has really changed the landscape in, in that sort of way. Right, which is the power to art. I mean, I'm saying I'm saying I'm equally ignorant, you know, but but I want to I want to expose people to art that expresses different points of views you know and what's great about my position is that you know i don't really feel the need to like make every film you know because i i can only express my point of view but if i can expose people to all this work then then uh, i feel like i'm doing my job how about how about your recent work what are the the films that you're working on right now well uh, black film now we're taking i'm taking a lot of the interviews that we've done over the past few years with the tv show and augmenting them with new interviews to really explore what's going on with with the trends in black film what what are you finding uh, well you know like i'm saying i i think audiences is the most crucial factor like you you can make the best film in the world and you make the worst film in the world but if if people don't know about it, you're not going to be able to advance the ball. You know, um, TV is a little different because it reaches more people. Um, it's proven through shows like Scandal and Empire and How to Get with, with, Away with Murder that, that that people don't mind seeing black folks and that black folks really will tune in for that and talk about it on Twitter and everything. Uh, you know, clearly this is different. Like 15 years ago, you you wouldn't necessarily see this trend because networks needed way more people to see a show in order for it to stay on the air but now it's more niche oriented so if they can get a certain number of people to just be involved with the show it'll stay on and box sets and binge watching has certainly changed those patterns so so there's some advents in tv that are interesting that i want to explore but as far as feature film goes it really is about the audience and and we and and from the artist's point of view uh, i think we need to ignore hollywood and just create our own work because hollywood has a way of bastardizing stuff and making it less pure and mm-hmm. i think w- the the success stories that we're seeing in in american film uh, are coming from people that have just taken the initiative to tell a story and then the resources have come in to help get people to go see it like a Selma yeah yeah and then the other film is um last night at the five spot which I've been working on forever it's a we shot a concert about it about six months before the five spot burned down there was a a reunion of black lily artists and we filmed it we pro tools audio and everything and just um trying to catch up with everybody and get some fresh interviews and yeah. you know hopefully in the next year that, that'll be ready But most people that are, are real film lovers that really, you know, deeply feel this stuff have, uh, you know, a handful of films that are sort of their personal favorite films that they particularly enjoy talking about. Is there anything you can think of? Well, the one I always tell people... They're almost your pet films, you know? Well, you know, I've, I've been fortunate. I've been able to show a lot of my guilty pleasures um, throughout, this, throughout the years of my screening series. Like, you know, I, I grew up on, like, John Hughes, uh, John Hughes and John Waters. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I, my tastes run popular and, and towards trash. When did you first uh, discover John Waters? 
John Waters. Uh, I bought Shock Treatment, and I have that in hardcover. So that was the first book he put out. You know, sort of, you know, laying down his aesthetic in a lot of ways. Yeah, I used to read stuff like that, and I, you know, Hollywood Babylon, and you know, all those kind of like you know, sort of secret histories of Hollywood kind of movie uh, movie history books. And Harry Medved had a book of the 50 worst movies, you know. So yeah, I had the Golden Turkey Awards. Golden Turkey book, Awards, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So um, as much as I, I want to elevate the culture, I'm not immune to terrible black films that just have trash value like a Dolomite uh <laughs> The Human Tornado being the better of the Dolomite movies. Yeah, and it's probably my favorite as well. It has that great uh, childbirthing scene in the beginning. Put your where, weight on it! <laughs> where they, they pull like a nine-year-old boy <laughs> out from between the legs. Well, it was weird. Like uh, the, the VHS, it was a cut scene for a while. I think it's restored on the DVD. Like he, he picks up this woman and, and rather than... Sh- he starts like... Uh, they intercut him going down on her with them eating ribs. <laughs> And they're just like sucking the juice off their fingers, and I'm like, "Oh my God, who thinks this? How how do you get away with this? You know, how do you how do you get away with this? Like in in a perfect world, like if I was a studio executive, like Dolomite would have like a three picture deal. Like he would be like the Woody Allen at my studio. Like whatever Dolomite wants to do, he gets to make it because it's just it's just so so bizarre. But yeah, you know, and that, it's funny you mentioned him and John Waters because for me those films almost. Have a similar sense of humor about them. But. Yeah, love Dolomite. The, there's one called uh, Darktown Strutters, uh-huh. uh, which uh, it's like a black biker film, but it's like so mondo. It's like the same people that made the Beach Party movies in the '60s decided yeah, the, to do a black exploitation film. Yeah, and the director was uh, William Whitney. William I think Whitney, one the, of his uh, last films. He's he like did Roy Rogers films. You know, yeah, he's like eighty something years old when he was directing this movie. It's so bizarre, but. Um, you know, like the the woman gets captured by Colonel Sanders, and they gotta escape, and this is just the most twisted stuff. But the fashions, the music, the dramatics, doing what you see is what you get. Um, yeah, you know, I so it, I think it was a serial. He directed movie serial, so uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it really has like the punchy action sort of feel to it in that way. Yes, it's that's a good one. Um, you know, Death Drug we showed with Philip Michael Thomas, which is. Uh, like an anti-PCP movie, which was was unreleased until home video. Like home video unearthed a lot of weird movies, uh-huh. um, but for whatever reason, Philip Michael Thomas, in the in the peak of his Miami Vice fame, decides to do an intro, like a prologue to the movie, where he's walking around in his Miami Vice getup, and he's talking about like, please don't do PCP. It's like <laughs> the most bizarre movie, but um, and you know, and then you know classics um i don't know what 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 inspires me i mean spike lee early spike lee movies you know nothing but a man i was i was very fortunate to meet ivan dixon before he passed I mean, yeah, that, was, yeah. that was a great ex- experience i was he friendly was with his son kamara out in uh, oakland he was a, a jazz musician and uh, the whole time i knew him i never knew that his father was was ivan dixon wow wow yeah and i i mean, I mean you know what a gift I'm a talented actor and very underappreciated director, you yeah, know, and yeah. a pioneer in some ways, in a lot of ways. But and nothing but a man. Uh, maybe talk about that for a second. I'm not sure if everybody's familiar with the with the yeah, film. Ivan didn't direct it. He stars in it with Abby Lincoln. Um, I think it's Michael Romer uh, directed it. But it's uh, it's set in the South. It's actually shot in New Jersey someplace. But uh, it's it's about uh, oh gosh, I, I, I want to say Deke is his name, but uh, 
you know, it's a guy who's got a son, and he meets he meets uh, Abby Lincoln's uh, school teacher, and they start a relationship. But mm. she's a preacher's daughter, I think, as well. Preacher's daughter, and yeah. she, um, you know, it's just about trying to make things work. And it's weird; there aren't very many black films that show true love and relationships. You know, yeah. trying to make things work. I mean, Sidney Poitier did one a year later with Abby called "For Love of Ivy," and. Of course, there's Claudine and Beyond the Lights and stuff like that. But, you know, it's it's weird. Like, we don't we, we can kill each other all the time. But, uh, you know, you don't get to see that too often. Yeah, nothing but a man, too. It has it, it really gets this underlying tension of, of uh, racism uh, from the society they live in. And I kept on being worried that it was going to build to some real big dramatic moment. But it doesn't. It just leaves it as being this undercurrent of tension. That I permeates. guess, but, but it's, you, you feel the tension that he's getting. Absolutely. But yeah. And he has he, he takes that on the woman, yeah. which I think is like the the realization, you know, like, you know, like it's got to come out somewhere and the woman takes the brunt of it, you know. So, but it, it is very hopeful in the way yeah. you know, he reconciles all this pain. It was an gr- amazing performance yeah. by Ivan Dixon. That he has really, and it it's kind of stems from his his father, you know, like not being in his life, you know. So, so it's about breaking the cycle, you know, in in some ways. I mean, I it's really, you know, I can watch that at different stages in my life and and see new things. Other, you know, other movies I can watch over and over, like early Eddie Murphy stuff, like Coming to America is probably my favorite film, not just black film, but my probably. You know, like that can come on at any time. I can just watch it all the way through. Trading Place is the same thing. Yeah. There's something about early Eddie Murphy that was just so, so bold and daring. Yeah, it's, it's uh, he's really turned into you know sort of the Fred McMurray of modern <laughs> you know family films. But uh, it's uh, I had to take my kid and show him something early. Like he had a whole different uh, you know attitude sort of in these earlier. He films. had swagger. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean he's got so much money at this point. It's gonna be hard for him to come back. And uh, how about that Saturday Night Live uh, performance just uh, when they did that reunion a Look, few he, months back? It's it's just the first step. You know, I'm not sure if he's gonna come back and guest host, but. Yeah. He opened the door for it, you know. He opened yeah. the door for a lot of things in that. I thought it, it was kind of curtailed, you know, when Brett Ratner kind of imploded. You know, like if he, if he had went ahead, I don't know if they intended on hosting the Oscars or not in retrospect, but or if it was just like a publicity stunt, if he had always planned to pull out or not. But yeah. but um, that would have been incredible if Eddie had come back and hosted the Oscars, I think. Yeah. But there's a lot of pressure on him. Like, I, you know, what, like, what was he going to I'm Gumby, damn it. You know, thanks for coming. What a, you know, I was. Hard to imagine him going to uh, comedy clubs late at night and, like, brushing up on his stand up skills or anything at this point, too, you know? I, I, mean, I guess it could happen. Uh, he just seems. There's very few people. Yeah. He doesn't need it. I mean, you know, yeah. like, you know, Adam Sandler doesn't need it. I don't know. It's hard to. I mean, I, I was such a big fan of those early films. It's you know, looking back at the last twenty years of his, his performances. There's a sense that you know maybe he could have uh, done something else with his career. But I think Dreamgirls is the first uh, sort of meaty acting role he's, he's really had in a while. Yeah. I, well, that's a whole nother story. If Eddie had done Fences at yeah. the time, that would have opened the door. I think you know when I look at Eddie Murphy's career, you know he he's just greedy. And I, you know, I'll say that in public. Like Tom Cruise, I mean, they're kind of in the same place now, yeah. career-wise. You know, Tom Cruise probably gets a little more money 
to do the action thing. But there was a time when Tom Cruise would like do the Clint Eastwood thing. He'd like make one for the studio and then he'd do one to enhance his body of work. You know, yeah, so yeah. like for every Top Gun, there was a Born on the Fourth of July kind of thing. And I think Eddie always did the comedy stuff, and he never really. Like, the only variation, he'd do an animated film, then he'd do a live action, and the animation kind of stuff yeah. took over. But, but you know, if if you're not really invested, and I think he was very young when he started, you know, how he saw himself as an artist or what his motives and intentions are. I think, I think he's gotten everything out of the business that he wanted, mm-hmm. and I don't know if anybody's ever really challenged him to really look at it as art. And I think he's, you know, he witnessed his dad get shot, you know? Yeah. So he's he's got some pain in his life. And I, I think if somebody really challenged him, uh, it might be it might be really hard for him to really dig in those places. Like, I think Dreamgirls, he he did go there uh, for a little bit. But then he, you know, at the Oscars, he didn't win. He walked out. So, you know, he's, you know, I think he loves and he hates the industry. Yeah. But I think, he, I think he's gotten out of it what he wants to. Mm-hmm. So... I, I can't fault him for that, but yeah, I would. I wish, you know, I wish there there was a a director that he trusted as much as he does um, Brian Robbins or whatever. Yeah, there, there's some missed opportunities there. He, he, I feel like he could have brought more black people into the industry. I mean, he may have, but he hasn't really made it public. You know, yeah. He 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 kind of squandered his power. You know, hmm. my kid loves him though. He loves him for Doctor Doolittle. I love and, him. Uh, I love him, but. You know, he was in such rarefied air. Yeah. It would have been nice if he had... Richard Pryor, too. You know, it would have been nice if he... if, You know, what drives you as a stand-up is your ego and, you know, and you're kind of self-contained. So yeah. it's hard when you've got to run a business or suddenly you're you're in a position where you've got to be a mogul or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, you saw what happened with Dave Chappelle to a certain extent. I mean, he rejected it. You know, he could have had $50 million to do whatever he wanted to. Yeah. But it, it went against his personal issues or whatever. So even, even at those upper echelons, negotiating the business seems a precarious thing. You got to have people in your corner that you trust. There's always a silent guy that, that looks out for you. Yeah. I mean, you know, but yeah, those those were, you know, they weren't they weren't necessarily tuned to be moguls. I mean, even Spielberg, you know, he was groomed by. Wasser, Lou Wasserman mm-hmm. at Universal, like he got taken under his wing. You know, he was he was sort of shown like this is what you can be. And I think a lot of times, if you don't have that, and you just do whatever you want to do, you you miss opportunities. But what's your, what's your take on Sp- on Spielberg? Where he is now. Uh, it's a career, uh, you know. Uh, Amazing. That's the work, yeah. He's, he inspired everybody. Mm-hmm. He inspired everybody. I mean, E.T. and Jaws. and I mean... Now, how about the body of work, though? How about, how about Sue now? What, what do you think of his recent work? Well, I mean, I, clearly he took a, a turn with Schindler's List to, to like, take more risks. Like, yeah. if, if I had any criticism of Spielberg, you know, in the 80s and 70s, is that everything felt very scripted and storyboarded and precise. And I think... You know, Spielberg and Clint Eastwood, those guys, I mean, they can make movies in their sleep. Like, they, you know, literally just close their eyes and just make great work, Um, you know, because they have a strong team behind them. Mm -hmm. But they also have something to say. And I think um, it's interesting to see Spielberg where, where he's not interested in making the big blockbusters anymore. And he's just, 
you know he he owns a studio he can get somebody else he can get christopher nolan to make that stuff you know and <laughs> somebody's can, making jurassic world he can he can do <laughs> he can do his personal stuff and and i think he's he's a true artist and he's a true pop culture guy you know like he's nothing nothing no criticism really of spielberg i mean do you do you feel a certain way about him or? uh i think everybody if you're you know a, a film lover has to have some take on spielberg for me i i've uh, always found him compromised by demanding that the happy ending in any film I mean, no matter what the subject is uh he always goes for that uh transformative moment at the end whether uh-huh. it's you know uh the oh, guy grave scene at the Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> yeah, well, the one that, the one scene that really hit home to me, or hearing about it only later, I guess, is, is in Schindler's List, when uh, Liam Neeson breaks down and says, "You know, with this ring, could I have saved oh, one more person?" That's when, the movie for me, though. That is, but in reality, Oscar Schindler escaped with a fortune in gems uh, sewed into the uh, into the upholstery of his car. <laughs> so, so I mean, the reality of the the gray area of that character being both the sort of you know uh, exploitive capitalist but, and the saver of people is. It makes it makes it makes it linger a little more if you if you pave everything over and make you know. Uh, but he's a storyteller. He's a true storyteller. <laughs> he is a true story. He's, he's such a visual director uh, that uh, that uh, the visuals that that uh, you know he comes upon film after film to me is what sells the films for me. And uh, yeah, and you know he's done more with it than Lucas. I mean, Lucas has done more behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. but um, I doubt Lucas is a film director at this point. Yeah, he really messed up Red Tails. <laughs> I didn't even he, see Red Tails. He, Lucas, yeah, yeah you should have yeah. kept your hands off that. Well, he was, was he directed that or just produced it? He he produced it, but he he did a lot of reshoots. He, yeah. he basically took the movie away from uh, the director and reshot a lot of it. Had it on the shelf for years, rewrote it. You know, he's, there's a classic episode of The Simpsons where uh, Danny DeVito is the voice and... Mm. Uh, you know, he's like uh, Homer's long lost brother. You yeah. ever see that one? No, yeah. Uh, so he, uh, it turns out like they were separated at birth or whatever. And um, Danny's gone on to be like this huge car company magnet, you know, right? He's like, you know, Homer, you're the everyman. You know, I want you to design a, a car. We're going to premiere it at the big car show, right? So they show Homer like, in, and he sits out with a team of, of engineers to uh, map out the design for this car right and homer keeps pushing him aside and drawing it himself uh-huh. right and like they have all these genius people that can do the drawing but he just insists on doing it his way and then they unveil the car it looks like this little child drew it it's like sharp <laughs> edges all over the place right and they unveil it and and uh the car's a complete bomb and it completely bankrupts Danny DeVito, who's invested all his money in. Is this like a Tucker uh, reference, maybe? It's kind of like Tucker, yeah. yeah. So, um, to me, you know that that's that's um, Red Tails <laughs> in a nutshell. I'm sure you know. I don't, you know, I'm on this fence about John Ridley, yeah. or you know, whatever. Like, but but I I feel like that was a too many cooks thing. Like just like just the idea of making it too PG. Like insisting, like I think the movie wanted to be like this serious drama that really showed these guys at war, and for whatever reason, it came out like this sort of pastiche of '40s action movies or whatever. Like, and yeah. and I feel like that was Spielberg's. I'm, mean, I'm sorry, George Lucas's um, 
input like no this has to feel like it was made in 1940 it's like well no but 2008 <laughs> audiences is not going to buy this you know yeah, so yeah. he uh, it's when people uh often when people find out you write about film or whatever i'm sure you run into people at mm -hmm. parties and uh they'll say like what what do you think the worst film has ever made is and uh Attack of the Clones, the second of the George Lucas. Uh, <laughs> that seems to really hold up every beam I need to support the idea well, of the worst I, film. I didn't. After I saw Jar Jar, I had no interest in seeing that kind of stuff. Like yeah. I, I, you know, I just won't. I, maybe one day I'll watch it, but I, you know, I think if I died today, that wouldn't be one of my regrets. Not seeing yeah. Attack of the Clones. I, mm -hmm. and I saw the first Matrix, and I've not seen the other two. That's a, a, a wise decision as well. I just, you know, I'm tempted, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I missed it in the theater. I don't know if I need to. Lately, I've been I've had a, a perverse desire to go back and see some of these franchise films I'd, I'd missed and stuff. I was watching the Pierce Brosnan, uh, uh, James Bond films. Oh, okay, which well, those are fun. <laughs> they're they're kind of fun. It's interesting to go back now that they really are sort of period pieces. They're late '90s films, and there's a there's a Clinton joke in the one film I saw where he gives Money Penny a cigar. Oh. And she says, I know what to do with this. Oh, and then God. she throws it in the trash and harumphs or whatever. But So do you like the dark Daniel Craig? Uh, or are you... Uh, I think, you know, like liking James Bond depends on how old you were when you first saw your first James Bond. Yeah, the first one I saw was Live and Let Die with... Uh, so you like Roger Moore's James Bond. But no, I don't. It's, it's only... Years later, I just had the realization, like, I was being put into those films, and that's Hollywood film, and my father took me and everything. But I don't I don't really think that was ever my fantasy. Okay. And I feel like there's so much weight put on those films, and they hold such a cultural space, you almost need an opinion on them. But going back to them now, like, I don't think I want to be a, a, a master assassin who travels the world. I don't think well, that's... Well, the Cold War is over, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, but I do like the Daniel Craig. I do like the, the more recent ones. I, I thought that it rescued a franchise that... You know, was forever more abund. I guess Skyfall was just so dark. It was yeah. just it just made me feel so depressed. Isn't that I every mean, blockbuster these days, though? A friend of mine really pointed out the idea that being a superhero is the most horrible, gut wrenching, angst ridden <laughs> thing. That nobody's happy or having any fun with their superpowers. See, like Dark Knight and all that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, but I I give it to them that they give like they they're willing to hand over these franchises to true artists. That's yeah. That's what I wouldn't say with regularity necessarily. I think yeah, Christopher Nolan and Nolan the Batman got films. it. Uh, Macquarie got it for a little while. There, there was like a little window, like right, right towards the end of like the Weinstein era, where you could go from making a movie for two million dollars to suddenly getting signed up to do a franchise. Yeah, from Usual Suspects to yeah. X Men. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't think that's going to come back. Well, it it kind of does and it kind of doesn't. Like some of these guys that are getting these shots are are they don't really have the vision. Like they're 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 making the move, they're making the lateral move over to these blockbusters, but they're it's still like Marvel, it's still a Marvel picture. It's not really their picture. Exactly. When I look at the these films and uh some of the remakes and sequels and these kind of things, I realize it's the producer that's the real name and the director's been chosen almost because right. they're going to be the most pliable and amenable to these powerful producers. Right. But then, you know, if you're willing to do all the work, um you can get those opportunities in TV like the the uh carry uh, the true true detective true film. detectives that yeah. guy he's he did the whole series he directed every episode of that thing yeah. so you know so i think i think there's a lane in tv that exists for auteurs 
that yeah. probably is disintegrated for feature film. But yeah, I have a friend who's, who's worked on a number of scripts over the years and had seen, seen his films produced as well. And uh, this, one of his most recent projects is writing a you know six hour piece. You know, wow. looking at, at you know something that could be uh, done into episodic television. Wow. See, that's too much work for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think about that. I was like, well, should I be doing? You know, you know, is this is this what I want to do, or is this like what I'm doing? You're making documentaries. Do you think you would make fictional films again? Is there is there a script that is boiling up inside of you? Or? Well, my mind, yeah, I, I still want to crack that nut. Like, I mean, from the first day of film school, like you know, Chris Columbus said, like you know, it's like brainwashed. Like you, you can do this, you know. Like you're part of this group. You can, you can be that guy, you know. And that's it. it keeps it keeps me together in one sense that I have that grounding, that foundation of my training. And you know, for me to get rid of the student loan debt, I've got to, I've got to be a little more ambitious. Than, you're still carrying student loan debt. Oh, absolutely. From yeah. from when? From AFI. Really? Yeah, from, a, from the nineties. Yeah, I had a free, I had a free ride for NYU. Uh-huh. But AFI is like, you know, that's that put me behind the eight ball. I haven't really, you know, I had like two good years, yeah. you know. But I've been my, I've been doing my own thing, you know. So yeah, so it's not. That's a real illustration of something that people talk about with our society, though. That kids are uh, coming out of school carrying so much student loan debt that it's keeping them from making daring choices or personal choices and pushing people more into, you know, the commercial well, realms. You, you got to figure. Yeah, I mean the 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 the. You know, the brainwashing, like, at the time I was going to film school, there's only one way into the industry, you know, like, if you couldn't really work your way up, you could work in the industry, you could, like, you know, become somebody's assistant and have a job, and, you know, there are lots of people that are working to this day that started on that route, but if you're going to film school, they're teaching the auteur theory, and they're saying, you know, you have a singular voice, and you, you're going to be that one guy, you know, so that... You know, clearly that worked for Brett Ratner, that worked for Night Shyamalan, that worked for Todd Phillips, that worked for um, the guy who did role models and all those stellar people that I went to school with. You know, um, you know, from from my perspective, there weren't as when I got out, there weren't as many people that I could go to to get opportunity. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, it, it was still it was still relatively new black people in the film business and a lot of those folks were still figuring it out for themselves yeah. you know so they weren't necessarily in a position to like take somebody in under their wing or whatever and I was not necessarily in a position where I wanted to work for somebody else like work work my way up through the sound crew or something like that so you know it's, it's the choices you make but you know a lot of what I'm doing now is trying to make it easier for the next person yeah uh, you're laying down the grassroots work that really needs to be done to support a film community well it's identifying what the outlying factors or underlying factors are to the success you know for me it's still about connecting it's the infrastructure doesn't exist it's you know like you can make great films but can you get them to audiences in a way where you can monetize Mm-hmm. And the answer to that, for the most part, is no. You know, audiences don't know about a lot of this work. They don't know about the Affirm films. You know, they don't know about Middle of Nowhere, you know, mm-hmm. or Restless City or whatever. So that's been the last 10 years. And then the next 10 probably will be developing that more and then trying to demonstrate by example what I think 
the potential of, of black storytelling can be, you know. So yeah, I still I still have some stories that I'm cultivating that I, I feel need to be told and I'm just trying to put myself in a position where I can do that. So man. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll have to we'll have to do that again. Great, great. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, for coming by. It's been a pleasure to uh, hang out and, in and your talk kitchen. Some more. Yeah. yeah, great Dan Harlem poster. <laughs> oh, we, you need to Instagram this so you can see what this looks like. We'll have to figure this out. Yeah. One, two, three, four. That's it for our show. Thanks again to Mike Dennis for the time and conversation. Check out all he's about at realblack.com. Check out their page on Facebook and check out their channel on YouTube. Catch past episodes of Fun to Know at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Catch me spinning jazz Mondays at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on WPRB Princeton. Read my film reviews at Fawker.com and check back in two weeks for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.